And welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system, and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. So welcome to episode one of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sankit, who's CEO at Synapse. How are you doing, Sankit? I'm good. How are you, Simon? Really, really well, thank you. Really well. It's a little later in the day for me than it is for you, but we're having a good one at 11FS. How's things at Synapse? Do you want to remind everybody who you guys are and what you do? Yeah, for sure. Uh, things are going great. Again, um, for anyone who doesn't know us, Synapse is a developer platform for launching fintech products. So if you want to do if you want to open up deposit accounts for businesses or consumers or want to do loans, credit cards, what have you uh, in the U.S., uh, Synapse is the better to go to. We love it. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, well, listen, the banking ecosystem is expanding all the time. With new players coming through, not just neobanks, but FS solution providers, third parties, technology companies, it's all shaking up. Uh, in today's show, we want to start at the beginning of the journey, looking at that ecosystem and unpicking how the technology is disrupting not just banking, but making us question who is a bank anymore and who are these actors? What do they all actually do? And we want to dive deeper into this. So we were joined by some incredible guests. Joining us today is uh, Helen Beerton, who is Chief Banking Officer over at Starling Bank. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Helen. Can you remind everybody who Starling is and what you do? Yes. Hi, Simon. And, and it's good evening from, from me. It's late in the day for me, too. We're both in the UK, I think. But uh, yes, I'm Chief Banking Officer at Starling Bank. And, and Starling is a, a challenger bank in the UK, founded in 2014 by Anne Bowden. And now we've got over 2 million customers, um, over 4 billion in deposits and nearly 2 billion in assets. So fast growing supporting many customers in the UK and, and really trying to change banking here in the UK and in Europe to come. <laughs> <laughs> and then the world. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, alongside Hello, we're also joined by Neil Ganu, who's founder of Finch. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us uh, who Finch are and what you guys do? Hey, thanks so much for having me, Simon. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Look, at Fitch, we are all about removing barriers to investing, and we're particularly focused on closing the wealth gap for millennials. Finch is the first all-in-one account that gives you the returns of investing while keeping the flexibility of checking. So we've, we've created a, a brand new experience around this. With your Finch account, we automatically invest every deposit into a portfolio of ETFs really designed to match your unique risk profile. And from there, we go one step further and make your invested balance liquid and accessible to you. So as you swipe your card for a coffee at a Starbucks, uh, withdraw cash from an ATM or pay your rent, uh, you can do so with a fractional commission-free portion of your portfolio instantly. Uh, the way we see it today, the, the world separates wealth creation and liquidity in terms of the industry. And being the first player to emerge the two, we have this radical opportunity to transform how people actually manage their money. So you no longer need to have your money sitting idle in a checking or a savings account. 
And you can get those benefits of investing without having to change how you manage your money today. So we launched in late 2020, and we'd love for everyone to try what we're building. Thank you so much, Neil. That sounds super exciting. Um, well done on, on getting the launch out and well done at doing something disruptive. And speaking of all things disruptive, I think we've got some fantastic guests here to kind of give us some perspective. But let's take a look at those um, players in the financial services ecosystem and how it's evolved over time. So, okay, I'm going to come to you first, actually. When did you first hear the term fintech and neobank and challenger bank? When did that really hit your radar? And how would you say that's different to, say, a, uh, a traditional bank? Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is, uh, when I started Synapse, banking as a service didn't exist as a phrase. Neobanking didn't exist as well. Uh, we saw about like three and a half years ago, uh, customers start coming in who were calling themselves neobanks. Um, and that's been kind of like organically, that was the first time we really heard the phrase, which was these challenger banks, if you may, who were trying to kind of like build deposit products. And now the funny thing is, we hear the similar phrase being used for even credit cards and products like that. So it seems like at this point, the definition has evolved a little bit from three years ago. Three years ago, it was used to be buying large checking accounts. And now it is like with Neil, a mix of checking and brokerage. Um, then we have folks doing credit products. We have folks doing kind of like even basic savings accounts, but they all really think of themselves as neobanks. I think it's an interesting term because bank suggests one certain type of thing. But to, to that point, Neil, you guys are doing something a little bit different. So is that doing something different? Is that the call for you? I think there's a lot of competition in the space, right? So you know, I touched on it earlier, but the, the thesis that we see is that the industry is kind of separated into kind of liquidity and, and, and wealth creation and you know, doing something different for us actually means merging those two. So we see extremely competitive within those silos of kind of liquidity. I mean, in principle, banks have no incentive to provide returns to customers. Banks take deposits, put them against mortgages, charge them interest, keep most of it. And they're using those deposits exclusively for their benefit. So when it comes to paying uh, customers' returns, I mean, there isn't that incentive there. On the other side, on, on the wealth creation side, brokerages and we all kind of were observers and potentially participants of what transpired in, in the US a couple of weeks ago you know, with this movement. But brokerages are incentivized to have people trading as, as much and frequently as possible. And they're compensated on that. So they have no incentive for liquidity. And uh, the same thing with asset managers, they're compensated on assets under management. So for me today, uh, differentiation really comes down to, to merging those two. And, and we're really trying to do something different to result in much better outcomes for, for customers. I love that point about doing something different to result in better outcomes for customers. Helen, I'm interested in and in how the landscape looked when Starling launched versus and, and how different it was from, from some of the um, incumbents and the regular banks that were available at the time and what the main differences are in, in your mind. Yeah, I think um, I think it's been a fascinating, well, as, as I said at the start, we, we launched in, in 2014 and I think... Um, Certainly, in my recollection of banking, I would say I was aware of the term at that point, but I think the understanding of it and the diversity of it has changed rapidly. And I think um, one of the things that people see as the visible output of that is um, different customer experiences and customer value propositions. And I think that's the very tangible element of it. And what, what you've particularly seen in the UK is services of developed and delivered and then the legacy banks are trying to follow it and capture it 
but what's missing from that is what's what's under the under the hood to quote <laughs> to quote the phrase which is that it's more than just that customer value experience it is the technology that's underpinning it it's the culture that goes with it it's the drive for speed and the and and I think there's more to it and I I think uh, with I think we're very much at the start of this journey and a long way to go so as you look at that then Sankate what would you say is different um, like in, the, the 30,000 foot level between how a, a bank would historically look under the hood and um, sort of a how a new neobank digital bank would look under the hood. What is it that they're doing differently? And I love that point, Helen, about like it's not just the front end anymore and the features, it's it's how you're enabling that with the bottom. Sankit, what do you think the main differences are? Yeah, so what's really changed and under the hood essentially is the enablement layer, more things are now available to permute through than they were before for the same value propositions. The value propositions haven't drastically changed. The only difference is banks are not capable of uh, uh, moving on to it as fast as other developers are because developers are just more competent with technology than banks have been historically. So you're starting to see this divide where now the new banking products are not looking a whole lot like banks but they're looking something completely different like neil's company finch is essentially a really good example of just that i think the interesting thing about what sam said there is that the underlying value to the customer hasn't changed but actually there for me the, the interesting thing is that what technology is driven is massively changed expectations and so the ability to deliver what I mean, the underlying value proposition, I agree, but I think the expectation of how that value proposition is delivered and the ability to support it through technology has massively changed in the last few years. And I just want to pick up on that point, because I think that how part of, of how the sausage gets made, how the thing gets put together, has really, really changed under the hood. And you know, historically, uh, to build a bank had certain providers, certain vendors that you put together in a certain way. And Sanke, I love that point that developers now have different tools that they can use and, and pick up that have taken away some of this pain. Um, I'm interested, uh, Neil, from your perspective, you know, what are the what is it about those tools that are different to what you would have had to do 10 years ago, maybe? Um, and, and what is it that it's enabled you to do? I think, I mean, as in the journey of getting to where we are today, you know, we of course didn't start at, hey, let's look at banking as a service providers. My, um, so the story I can share right before doing this was I actually tried to buy a community bank as a way of, uh, as a way of doing this. And the, you know, the way of doing this was effectively buying a bank, rebuilding it internally, and then going to work with regulators to say, hey, we're not backing deposits by mortgages. We are now backing them by securities. And, you know, we, we looked at that kind of journey and said, hey, look, it's going to take us far too long to get to that kind of customer outcome. So we had to look at kind of different ways of partnering, different ways of doing that. And to be honest, even with our proposition prior to making, meeting Sunket, our our proposition to, to other banks was difficult. Hey, we um, we need your help. We uh, would love to open checking accounts. And by the way, the money's not going to sit there anymore. We're actually going to deploy that on behalf of our customers, which almost goes against everything they stood for before. So that is is unique. And I think some of the intermediary players that are actually facilitating this and creating those pipes makes this type of innovation a lot more possible and and, and a lot easier. Because you've created a new, you've got an opportunity to create a new business model 
when you don't have to build all of the plumbing and all of the infrastructure, which is which is kind of interesting um, that, that that changes it. And then the the how you build that infrastructure, should you ever want to get there, uh, it is, is also different. I'm, I'm interested, um, Helen, you know, uh, Stalling is probably known in the UK for shipping features at a, at a real speed, kind of delivering new capabilities. And increasingly, as we look at the competitive advantage in this space, it really is about being able to ship quickly. Do you think that uh, the sort of building an ownership and building that culture of how you ship quickly is something that you've kind of really learned from? And how do you bottle that? What is it about that? What's actually happening under the hood there to deliver that speed? I think there's a there's a couple of factors at play. First of all, of course, um, our founder Anne was a software engineer, and, and technology was what drove her. Um, and she's worked in banking for years, so she understands both industries. And absolutely, when she set Starling up, she was very clear that this was a technology business that with a with a banking license. And for us, you know, that that banking license was quite important. But we've, uh, from that moment, built our own technology and we are, you know, it's, it's in-house and it's built on the principles of fast deployment and an ability to deliver lots of change very, very quickly because that is the point of advantage. It's being able to understand your customers, being able to respond to their needs. And, and that has significantly come into play in the last six, 12 months during the circumstances we've seen. For example, we've been able to launch our connected card and help people to who are vulnerable to be able to get access to support to buy their groceries. So I think this model of being able to move quickly, it was the whole ethos of how Starlink was set up because it needed to be how we operated. Helen, um, I, I love that point. And um, I want to bring that back to Neil, because Neil, you mentioned the alternative was buying a bank and transforming it front to back. When you looked at how long that was going to take, what was your sort of timeline on, on getting all of that infrastructure and plumbing in place and the regulatory approvals and all of that kind of good stuff? So uh, this answer is very different for an American person. <laughs> I'm originally from Australia. So uh, it was around kind of a year to a year and a half on the kind of acquisition mechanics um, there was another two years to be um, put out as a as a person who's acceptable from an OCC perspective, and then it's probably at best case um, another year from a, a technology transformation perspective. So, you know, these are not kind of back to back, but I think you're looking at a timeline of of three years um, to to actually do this in in a kind of comprehensive way. It was was our initial estimates, and uh, you know, working with partners, we we've gotten to market much faster. And can you give me a quantum of like what much faster looks like? Just and you don't have to say exactly, but I'm interested in in what uh, what much faster means. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share. So I mean, we integrated with the banking and brokerage side last March, and we had a live product with real users in beta in September, and we launched the market in November last year. From from a more or less standing start, that's that's an incredible bit of speed. And Sankit, do you think that uh, there's a level of sort of abstracting of the infrastructure and a skill set change that's coming to the market that's enabled that? Yeah, totally, right? Like um, one thing that I kind of always encourage the team to do, uh, which are core values, is be the product people can go to market 
the quickest with. We think that's super important. Um, and that is the skill set change. Uh, that's a skill set change coming from like continuous integration and deployment, like engineering culture versus like in audits and banking culture. Um, so, it's, so it's a different frame of mind to be able to think, okay, we're going to do milestone-based sprints, and then let's figure out how much can we compress these sprints and do them in parallel. Uh, so it's less so kind of like uh, uh, controls and responsibilities. It's like a sprint mentality. Even this is like too much about Synapse, but even right now, we're kind of like re-architecting our implementation journey for our customers, and it's being built in Jira. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Behind the scenes, it's, it's sitting in like an engineering tool, essentially being managed by technical people with, with tons of automation for our customers. Um, and that's definitely a change in mindset and skill set compared to how uh, some of the other folks in the industry do it, and for good reason, because like they're kind of thinking of it from a very different headspace than what developers need it to be. And I think that culture thing is is really, really important. And uh, Sanke, you were sort of hitting on there. Um, I, I observed that with some 11FS clients, there are um, definitely folks that really, really trust us to do agile properly. Um, and what I mean by that is there's so many sort of agile at scale inside of big bank programs, but there's the, here are the milestones and here's the estimate for the piece of work rather than here's our objectives and burning against those and see how we get to and see how far we get on. Um, but, you know, Helen, you're a bank with all of the rules and regulations and controls around you. How do you balance all of that? Because if you're going to build this development culture, uh, how do you get the regulators comfortable with that development culture and working differently and and kind of still demonstrate you have control? Well, I think that, you know, the way of working doesn't mean a lack of control. And I think that that's, in fact, it, it's uh, in many ways, it's quite the opposite because the way of working, there's probably a couple of points to really highlight. One is that by deploying quickly and changing quickly, it's inbuilt that one, you can reverse out a change and two, you can redeploy a change. So, the infrastructure allows the control in, in a way that's very different and allows you to manage the risks in a very different way. But secondly, for us, it was really important to get that banking license and to operate in that regulated environment because we set out to build the trust in the ecosystem as well and to ensure that our customers knew what sat behind it. And so, and we've got, you know, a banker who, who set it up. So, we absolutely set out with putting in the infrastructure so that we operated to the license and were able to give the, the consumers that protection. So I think that the regulated environment makes it difficult. There's lots of rules that you need to follow, but it makes it difficult for a reason because you're protecting customers' money. But equally, actually, once you understand it, you get a better control environment. It's interesting, 11FS CTO Ewan always talks about that the way uh, historically big banks had managed uh, change because they had this culture of mainframe and the mainframe was designed for 100% uptime. They had to wait until an outage, which might be once a quarter and it might be once a month to do all of the changes at once, which is the opposite of modern software engineering practice, which is actually you want to get to, as Sankit, you were saying, continuous integration, continuous deployment. You want to be changing it 
you want to make those changes as small as possible and you want to be doing them as frequently as possible. And actually, that's a really, really good thing. So that that mindset difference between what you can do with a modern technology stack, modern development processes, and how that actually reduces the risk is, I think, a really important point that often people miss about um, some of the fintech space. So if I can briefly summarize what I've heard so far, uh, uh, the standout differences about neobanks and and, uh, challenger banks is They've taken a real different approach to the customer problem space. Sometimes it's it's really about just kind of living up to the new expectations of, of where customers have changed. Sometimes it's about doing things that the banks weren't doing and doing that new. Uh, they're sort of they've changed how they're working in terms of the they're using modern software engineering processes. Potentially they're working with banking as a service providers to get to market quicker, and they're also really starting to think about uh, how they. Uh, deliver at pace and continue to deliver on that pace. So that gives us, I think, a good view of fintechs and how they're different to the banks, certainly on the neobanks and the challenger side. But what about our friends at the big techs? What about the non-banks? What do we think of those guys? How would you define the sort of the the folks that aren't doing um, sort of the primary product as a neobank or the primary product is is like Neil's doing like a, a, a finance product? Sankit, how would you define who they are? Um, can you give me some examples of that type of company? Yeah, I think um, it's a it's just a tech company that thinks finance is a new way to engage their customers, like in a nutshell. Like Apple's trying to do that with their Apple card. Amazon's supposedly trying to do that with an easier banking stack for their sellers and buyers, but essentially kind of like a new way to engage their existing customer base. What that also means is they're going to be a little bit more reserved and think about like high scale versus think about nuances. So I think what you'll see Apple or Amazon succeed at is a model that's been tried. So they will they will be chime, but but they won't be Finch. Like um, that is kind of that's the big difference. And if it turns out like Finch is as big as Chime, then they might also be Finch. So like they're really looking at these broad strokes use cases mm-hmm. um, and then trying to engage their customers appropriately. Being as deep as I am into banking and finance. Now, uh, which is an odd phrase to say, I'm not convinced that there are general purpose solutions to some of these problems. I think uh, banking and finance is quite nuanced, and there is a reason why it's been so fragmented for that like that specific case. Um, so I think there are going to be more and many versus uh, a few in financial services. Interesting perspective. Neil, I'm guessing you're going to agree with that, but I don't know if you can take the other perspective as well. What value would a big tech add in this stuff doing? Is it just their logo on it or can they do something differentiated, do you think, if they've got things that are a bit more granular to play with? I I do. I I do agree with with Sanket on that. I I see it a little more niche on that side in terms of the the big tech. No one can argue with the brand asset that each of them bring, right? This this is incredible. People trust the brands, and you know everyone's seen the survey a million times. Which brands do you trust? Um, and you know they they always rank relatively high depending on the player. I, I see more of an opportunity for them to stick with their existing basis. So for Amazon, for example, to you know get into more of a um, 
seller financing or you know a small business product i i, I see a likelihood there um apple on the consumer side sure i mean they've started with the card you can see that potentially going further um google is the one i have a, a little bit more of a question mark on in terms of what they do because they are so broad but um i, I think you know if you compare it to a chime they, they see the same opportunity that, that we see and uh you know when it comes to that direct question of hey um do we see them copying us or doing something similar to us? I think the answer is yes. And the answer is yes after we have traction. So it's a little, it's a little beyond brand plus capital. Um, I mean, those two things alone make them considerable competitors. Um, but I, I see them kind of aligning closely to what products they provide their customer bases. And, and that's what I think that their first opportunities would be. Mm, interesting perspective. So there's really something about um, they want to see the things that are proven that can really uh, make a difference for their customers and uh, kind of create more engagement with the core of their product. Helen, how do you think about it as well? Is the big tech uh, sort of community coming to finance in a big way anytime soon? We've certainly seen some big moves in it. And are they, uh, should fintechs be afraid or should they be working together in some way? I think it, it's a really fascinating space, but I'm, I'm going to largely agree with what Neil and, and Sanka have said in terms of uh, what we're seeing is that they're taking products that work alongside their existing products and play for their customers. I think the, the space about getting into fintechs and banking is absolutely fascinating because I actually think that the interesting point here is regulation. So if you look at the markets that the big techs are in, um, they're not regulated yet. And um, there's a lot of talk and there's, there's, we've seen a lot of pressure towards regulation for those big tech companies. But banking is a regulated industry and it's regulated from a point of view of providing customers with, with money. And that's, um, that's a really important uh, feature that we're providing. Now, I think what is really interesting for me is when you look at the Apple credit card, um, yes, it's a it's an Apple credit card, but it's it's backed by Goldman Sachs and all of the underwriting and the banking is, you know, is still by a bank. And I think that's a that's a fascinating move. And by the way, a, a big um, take out of Starling's playbook in terms of <laughs> the features in, in that card. So we'll we'll take that as a compliment. But um, look, I think. I think the technology companies have, have developed hugely and there's a, a lot for uh, of skills that they've got for us to learn from. But I still think banking is a heavily regulated space and I'm not convinced they want to get, they get full into banking. Yeah. I think another piece to add to that is, um, think about this. How many Apple products can people get rejected for? I can say probably close to zero. But that changes as soon as you add a credit card. Now, how many people can get rejected for that? Well, Apple doesn't control that anymore. Um, and I don't know if at the scale of Apple, that is the most desired outcome for a lot of their products. Maybe a few of their products is fine. Um, so I don't see this like being a very dominant force for that that very reason, unless they like just change something fundamentally to that equation, which so far there's no indication that they're going to be buying a bank charter. So it doesn't seem like uh, um, that's their motivation. 
interesting perspective. Um, so as we stand back and we look at the the new entrants, as we look at the fintechs and the neobanks, we look at the big techs, what do you think's changed about the market? Um, Neil, I'm going to come to you in terms of where's the consumer now that they weren't two, three years ago? And, and what do you think that's going to be kind of the real things that we see in the next couple of years in terms of the development under the hood? Very interesting question. The, the way that I look at it is the speed of change, right? And the speed of change is different from a technology perspective. Uh, it's different from a consumer perspective in terms of expectations. And, you know, these two things were, were typically moving at different speeds in the past. And uh, now we're seeing it with kind of the big wave of tech entrance and, and that boom those expectations are going a lot faster. And, and you see those expectations, I mean, in, in the US, at least in Europe as well, with arguably Europe is a richer neobank market than the US. Um, consumers expect more from their banks, expect more digital experience, uh, expect more of kind of real time, you know, um, instant gratification and, and, and that view. So I think that's exactly the real time nature of it is where I see, um, you know, things are changing in the near term. This comes down to real-time payments. This comes down to, for us, you know, instant access to your deposits. Uh, and on, on the lending side, if, if we break out those three parts of banking, and if we pause and take a look back of what's happened and where have neobanks changed, the first wave was experience, right? And you can put almost all of the, the challenger banks in that bucket today, which is we offer a better user experience. The second wave was almost a better culture around fees and, you know, righting some of the wrongs that larger institutions had kind of enforced on people and the wrong from being transparent and kind of letting people know what they're waiting for. And then the latest wave that I'm seeing now is around niches, niches um, catering to a specific target, a specific demographic, a a specific subsegment of uh, the population. And um, I, I think that's primary for now. I mean, what we bring is, is more of a product differentiation element, and I think that is going to change. But I think uh, the, the changing of kind of real time is going to create new opportunities um, in this to, to get to that next wave. And the larger banks are always playing catch up around this. And yes, they can catch up to some elements, but I'm, I'm not convinced that you know, they can catch up immediately, hence creates the opportunity for everyone. I love those three waves. I think that's a really good way of looking at the market over the past decade or so in terms of the sort of at first it was experience, then second, it's really about um, sort of uh, pricing and transparency. And then third, we are seeing this wave of sort of massive niches. Shout out to the guys at Daylight who are doing interesting things in that space. Um, Killer Mike Greenwood's bank and many, many, many more that I'm not naming. Um, Helen, Neil mentioned something interesting, real time. If you're, if you've, Kind of come from a software engineering background, like why is that an important thing in banking? Why does that actually matter? What's interesting, because you guys are all in the States, yeah, and and here in the UK, we've got a lot of real-time services already that make a a big difference, particularly in the payment space. There's been huge advances on on things like faster payments. and, and, And I think what we've benefited from is a huge drive for that improved financial services in the UK. So... Actually, what that means is you are delivering services and you're starting to be able to meet those customer experiences, but it's not just about speed, it's the data that supports it as well. And I think that, I think that's what's, um, can I add a fourth wave? I don't disagree with Neil's three waves, but um, the, use of, the use of data and it's not just, it's not just the real time, but it's the data that you now have that supports it that enables you to give richer information clearer information uh, a more transparent experience 
that's what helps you transform and if you can if you can take that and turn that into your customer value proposition it, it makes a significant difference and i think on that it's kind of become default in europe now that um every time you make a transaction somewhere you get a little merchant logo of where that transaction was maybe a google maps of where that transaction was um, and it's something that the big banks slowly are starting to catch up with but most of them still aren't there or even simple things like a notification that a payment just happened and um, most big bank infrastructure just doesn't allow for that real-time notification and then now some of the incumbents have started to add that and over the last two three years but it, like it's cost them an awful lot of money to add the stuff that comes out of the box with modern technology and software stacks which which i think is an interesting perspective i love those examples as well and being able to add like logos so that you see the merchant you're buying from and you know really make it a a, a much more enjoyable experience is 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 very valuable and, and I think on that, it, it feels like a gimmick until you realize how it works under the hood and how hard it is for everybody else and what customer problem that solves. So like the biggest issue with trying a new card quite often, we've, at 11FS, we've done tons of customer research. And the, the big one is, will this work? Did that payment go through? Hey, has the transaction happened? And then the second biggest is, uh, what's this thing on my account? I don't recognize this. And that, the consumer anxiety and the, the concern around that is really quite significant. Neil, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I did. I um, I have a great story around this. And, you know, I was in, in a past life, I was an early employee at N26, and I was having a conversation with their head of design at the time. And the way that they looked at it was incredibly interesting, which is you know, in the old world, when you paid, you opened your wallet or your purse, you opened it, you saw money inside, you paid for something, and then you saw that amount go down in your wallet. And um, that's kind of the logic they use to design some of their notifications. And, you know, as an anecdotal experience, I saw this firsthand, I would pay for something uh, when I was in Germany. And before looking at the number on the till, I would actually pull out my phone from my pocket and check out exactly how much was charged, which is a completely different twist on, you know, the, the traditional confirm like, hey, how much did that just charge that? And I think that's part of that consumer behavior change, um, which is enabled by this technology. Interesting. And Simon, can I just build one more point? Like the examples you use there are really great because it's that only when customers start getting them do they realize the benefit, like the fraud protection that comes from that even the Google Maps and knowing, you know, you can go and see that it was spent where you are. There's so much added value in that, that data that really... Um, is very useful. It's one of those things where um, nobody ever asked for an iPhone, but when they had one, they couldn't get enough. And the consumer is very bad at telling you what they want. They're very good at uh, telling you what their problems are. And actually, if you fall in love with their problems, you can start to get into a different solution space. But how do you test those rapidly? How do you get them in the hands of customers quickly? You need a fundamentally different set of infrastructure and a fundamentally different uh, set of ways of working to be able to get that done. Um, I'm going to bring us back around, though. Do you think then, Sankit, that uh, what a bank is, what a fintech is, is, has changed? Is that term starting to to lose some meaning? What What do you think it means to, to kind of be in, in the next decade? Yeah, I think I think I have a different perspective on this um, than than everyone on the panel right now. Um, I think we're going through a revolution. Like, what people really care about is having access to the same tools that rich people have. It's that plain and simple. And they're kind of pissed off that they haven't been able to participate in the economy that people who are more well off have been historically. So every single tool, every single product. 
they will use and they will use in droves uh, to be able to get them there. Um, so over the course of the next 10 years, I don't think it's as important as who's a bank and who's a fintech. Uh, um, I think the more important thing is what are the values you stand for and are those values helping the revolution or not? Like people want access to high-class financial products that uh, um, very few have had historically. And I think it's quite likely if I were to place a bet on something that developers in fintechs would be able to really like kind of like come in droves and waves and be able to enable that change over anyone else. So I think over the course of the next 10 years, the focus is, okay, there, there are a lot of elite ideas and a lot of elite solutions that other people have had access to who are more well-off and we haven't, and just democratize that. Like every single wave, doesn't matter if it's like user experience or or just enablement. Like people didn't go to Chime just because the user experience was easy. People initially went to Chime because they didn't charge obscene like, like fees per month. Uh, people didn't go to Robinhood uh, because the experience was so much more slicker than uh, Charles Schwab. They couldn't go to Charles Schwab, <laughs> uh, uh, so that they went to Robinhood. Um, and like, no one's been able to really democratize financial advice. And people are not even waiting for a really clean data or a tool. They're literally just going to Wall Street bets. Like that's it. They just are so hungry to have an equal playing field. And over the course of the next ten years, that's the roadmap. Can you can you level the playing field? I think that's such a good macro picture of where the consumer mindset is and where the, the big pieces are. I'm guessing, Neil, that plays neatly into to where you're thinking about things. But uh, how do you build on that? I I mean, that's that's where we start, right? I mean, and that's exactly where kind of our roadmap points. So today what we do is we let people get the benefits of simply participating in the equity markets without kind of changing their behavior. And forever and a day, there's been this you know, save to invest mentality where you need to save up a certain amount before you actually start participating. So from the, you know, equaling the playing field, kind of that's where, that's where we start. We absolutely have savings advice and retirement uh, on, on our roadmap because they're the things that are fundamentally broken. For me, savings is behavioral. Uh, advice needs to be distributed in a mass market way. Uh, advice is, you know, is a robo-advisor going to replace kind of all of your financial advisory needs no absolutely not still a human element there and um, it's getting that to people at a cost-effective manner um, and then finally on that retirement side yes saving up for retirement is, is important and when we look at it it's what's the reverse like what happens once you retire so from a decumulation mm-hmm. standpoint the Finch account that we have today is an incredible way to keep your assets deployed uh, and still have access to them you know through those um, th- through that period so um, equaling the playing field is uh, a huge huge goal and that's, uh, that's that's kind of what we're working towards and uh, starting off today with the products that we have I love that point that it, it goes through the generations like equaling the playing field is not just for young people on a on a forum somewhere this is really about the the opportunity and the the build up and it, there is this perspective um I saw some great research that said that uh you know sort of um views on climate change are young people versus old people it's just not true it's it's a movement that's coming through all generations and and that evening the playing field does feel very macro like the important thing uh, Helen do you have any thoughts to add on this piece I, I think only to echo what's been said and just to put build up on your point. Um, like I managed to convince my parents to get um Starling app and like this is not a young people or an old people or you know, this is everybody 
wants um, has an expectation and, and technology can make a difference for everybody. So, you know, the time is now. So I think what I'm hearing here is is really interesting that there's the new entrants that came to the market at the time they did were responding to the change in consumer demand. And actually the consumer demand continues to change and speed and pace of change has become the real competitive differentiator to be able to do that. And the culture of transparency that really supports and enables that. Uh, so I think we've lifted the hood on the market and who the actors are. I think we've given a good overview there, hopefully that gives you, as we go into the rest of the series to start to look at um, all of the different pieces of the stack and uh, where people sit within it. So I'm I'm super uh, delighted to have been joined by you guys to go under the hood. That concludes today's episode. Um, next week, it's payments. We're going to be talking about payments. Uh, are they an area for disruption? Uh, what technology is doing to drive change? And again, similarly, who's involved? Um, so thank you so much to our guests for joining us this week. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Neil? Uh, more about us at www.finchmoney.com or on the Apple App Store. We'd love for you to try what we're building and we'd love to hear your feedback. And Helen? Um, Starlingbank.com and uh, also on LinkedIn and Twitter at Helen Beerton. Thank you so much. Uh, Sankit? Yeah, um, you can go to synapsefy.com um, and pretty much the same handles on LinkedIn and Twitter to, to know more about us. And there you heard it. Uh, and you can find me on at SYTaylor on Twitter or look for Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. Uh, if you like this podcast, remember to subscribe and tell people about it. We're going to have all new episodes dropping very, very soon. Uh, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. You know, just spread the word. Uh, if you want to go under the hood, come with us. Um, and you can find out more about the show on 11FPS and the Synapse social platforms. We'll be back next week. Thanks very much for listening. Bye for now.